talking one hertz, which sounds a lot like this. Hello and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. My guest this week is Greg Dickens, an old friend of mine from Cambridge Footlights, I think is where we met. Yeah. Uh, who is now an inventor. Very true. Uh, innovation consultant, to use the full title. Yeah, but that's so much less fun. I know. That's why I introduced myself as inventor. I just felt like picking holes in your statement. Sorry. In- in- innovation consultant sounds way too corporate and sort of buzzwordy. Agreed. And therefore unpleasant, borderline meaningless. And untrustworthy. And untrustworthy. It, it, it I don't know, that kind of, yeah, that kind of, te- is the way that people package things ruins them, I think, often. I think you're right. I was um, chatting. You would like to excite our customer? <laughs> well, uh, I think sometimes exciting one's customer is a perfectly valid thing to want to do. Yeah. If you are a theme park or a prostitute, um, there are times when exciting one's customer is the, the name of the game. Yeah, and that's fine. But if you read that in a pamphlet or more likely on a PowerPoint presentation, uh, it's just going to smack of disingenuousness very true i have to produce a lot of that corporate bullshit every day um in amongst the no wait wrong way around if we imagine that time spent inventing is like gems Mm -hmm. because you come up with metaphorical gems then the uh don't don't talk yourself up or anything Uh, indeed um or the, the, the useless crap around it would be the corporate bollocks that you have to go through uh, in order to um, find people who want to buy inventing skills mm-hmm. uh, and find a way to get time spent lying flat on your back thinking about comets past your boss because it takes a bit of time spent lying thinking about comets to come up with ideas about I don't know, nuts and bolts or the way plants grow. Um, there's a lot of thinking about problems backwards and sideways to get to an answer that you weren't expecting. Yeah, but then you have to package creativity into something palatable. Yeah, which is frustrating because it takes time uh, and it's not... Generally, you you have somebody who wants... who's got, I don't know, an idea for something they want. Mm-hmm. but they don't know how to get it. Um, so they have an end point, but no midpoint. Often, yeah. Or they have a really cool technology, but they don't know how to sell what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of the first one and a little bit of the second. Mm-hmm. And they go, right, these guys are inventors. Um, d- tell me, how do I get this thing that I want? And you go, ah, oh, it's like this. And they go, brilliant. What's that, tenner? 15 quid? Well, yeah, whatever. But apparently, no, you have to package an entire project around it or else their boss will have a go at them for not um, not going through the process properly. And my boss will have a go at me for not going through the process properly. So the process is this thing. I mean, this is something I think about organisations generally because they can only measure measurable things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, then you're essentially working inside a sociopath you are an organ within a sociopath 
Uh, true, but then probably also true for a lot of companies, like all. Yeah, I, I all think all companies, companies all organisations. If they're treated as can people, only, would be sociopaths. Yes, can only have sort of robot understandings of human emotion. Agreed. And in I include in human emotion like creativity, human something that's sort of essentially. Uh, random yeah in distribution and quality and so it cannot be understood by an organization except by through process true but where sociopaths have the rest of us beat is also where companies and their process have the rest of us beat which is in uh completeness yes and uh certainty of completeness and the fact that you don't need any individual human to continue the processes involved. You can just change out the organs with more mm. or less the same function. Some are more efficient than others. Are we still sticking to the human sociopath metaphor here? Because you, you're basically on the sociopath cyborg at this point. Yes, I'm talking about... Uh, no, the sociopath analogy, I think, still works. Say you are with the liver... swappable livers. You are the liver of the sociopath. But the great <laughs> thing about the sociopath is that it doesn't matter whose liver he has... As long as he's got someone's liver. If he has sufficient processes to understand how a liver works mm -hmm. and what its role is, mm -hmm. and you have a sufficiently complete suite of handover documents, mm -hmm. then the liver can learn on the job. That's very true. <laughs> uh, as, as my other half is finding out at the moment. She is a new liver at my company yeah. um, and very much enjoying herself. Your wife. Uh, not yet. Your fiancé. Thank you. Uh, wife in two weeks. Ah. Yeah, indeed. Almost wife. Pre-wife. I think you've gone from fiancé to pre-wife at this point. D is that a thing? It's not a thing. I just made it up. Because like, <laughs> our engagement has been very short. Um, comparatively short. Yes. Okay. Comparatively short. It not like this afternoon. Not shotgun short. Um, <laughs> it is not a, a sawn-off engagement. It is um, a couple of months, a few months engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, which, after eight years of getting to know her, uh, seemed about right. So, yes, your engagement is maybe more of a formality. Potentially so, yeah. There had to be a point at which she knew we were going to get married so she could help organise the damn thing. Um, <laughs> and I'd done as much organising as I could. I had booked the venue and I had booked the other venue and I had arranged catering. And then I thought I'd best propose because if she says no, I've wasted a good few grand here. Uh, well, a few grand is only like three grand all in. Mm. Weddings aren't that bad. Well, weddings aren't that bad unless you want a diamond-encrusted unicorn. Yeah, which she didn't. Diamond-encrusted armadillo, much cheaper. Much cheaper. And you don't have to dress as a cake swan. No. God, no. Which is what most women Many seem to want. Many people seem to do. Gwen made her dress. Um, yeah. uh, her and her mum made her dress together. And apparently it has enough room that she can eat on the day, which is... Uh, an important thing for both of you. Uh, an important thing for both of us. That's the thing we could be podcasting about, Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to push you to talk about anything you're not comfortable with. Uh, no, and the internal workings of my uh, mind are something that nobody would be comfortable with, let's be honest. That's However, the whole point of this podcast. <sighs> it's about your comfort, not the listener. An interesting, An interesting thing. I wonder how many of your podcast guests you push beyond their comfort zone without meaning to. Ah, you turned it on me. Um, I don't know. I had a conversation 
I think two podcasts, three podcasts ago with a a woman um, now known as Reet or Rita, who used to be known as Gia James. She was talking about her brother dying, um, and she told me something on the podcast that she said she had not told anybody else um, and was quite upset about it. Not, you know, upset with me, but I think overwhelmed with having articulated something that had been eating away at her, um, whether consciously or unconsciously. Other than that, I don't know. I, I'm, I, oh, actually, that's another thing. I very early on spoke to uh, Rob Hunter, who's a comedian, mm-hmm. um, and he's a very light touch comedian. He likes talking about um, chip packets. <laughs> and I asked him about his family, and after about 45 minutes of chatting about chip packets, he spoke to me about his family situation and then asked me to cut it out, <laughs> which I did, but I was internally, I, I, I was going to say furious, not furious. I was, I was disappointed because I'd felt like that was a really interesting angle on his personality. It's fair enough. But that he, as a public figure, should have control over that. Yeah, also fair enough. So the thought that just popped into my mind about something I can speak about. Oh, yeah. Which is fear. Since when did you last see me? Uh, I think I saw you maybe a year ago, maybe two. Just before Nigeria. Mm. Yes. Well, something happened to me in Nigeria. Um, setting the scene for your listener here. As a trained veterinary surgeon who uh, failed to achieve something he wanted to, sporting-wise... Um, the fella you're listening to decided, fuck it all, I'm going to Nigeria to play with monkeys and gorillas. That was very passive language. Greg was training for a thing, yeah. didn't quite hit the mark, uh, and then decided to go to Nigeria to drown his sorrows in monkeys. But they, yeah, exactly, precisely. Monkeys and apes, don't, don't rule out the apes. The apes were very bloody exciting. Anyway, um, yeah, and um, while I was tracking some of these apes on an extinct volcano, I uh, slipped and I hit the back of my head so hard that I went blind. Uh-huh. Uh, because I started bleeding into the gap between two of the membranes uh, inside my skull and putting pressure on my visual cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting thing about central blindness is that you don't know you've got it because your brain is so good at filling in the blanks mm. that your visual cortex, like what's left of it, what's left of it working, works its ass off to present your consciousness with a picture that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's so good at it you, that your consciousness doesn't even notice. So you're walking through a jungle, in my case, thinking, oh, I'm amazed I haven't got concussion. And then you hold up your hand and you can't see it. Uh-huh. And then you start to realise that actually you can't see anything down one side yeah. of both eyes. So it's got to be a central problem. Uh-huh. Which then, side of both eyes was it? I, well, the left side of the retina, so the right side of the field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't see my right anything. Mm-hmm. And then slowly I couldn't see the left side either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing I could see um, was ants, like um, jungle ants. Mm-hmm. And they will uh, kill you if you don't keep moving. 
Mm -hmm. um, they have killed people in the past, um, generally people who are comatose or uh, drunk out of their skin. Um, but uh, I was starting to feel like maybe I should have a bit of a nap and just relax a bit. Uh, and it was then that I was more afraid than I had ever been. Uh, and weirdly, it wasn't, it wasn't immediate fear. It was fear of what would happen to the people at home. Mm. Did I ever tell you why I got into stand-up in the first place? No, you didn't. I did it to scare myself. I think probably quite a lot of people do it to, to scare themselves. Mm. That is not why I did it, but... No, I can I think people, yeah, I think often you'll get people who are in boring jobs mm -hmm. who want to get out of their comfort zone. Um, but you don't strike me as somebody who's uncomfortable getting out of your comfort zone, Mr. Training with the Olympic team, slash going to Nigeria, slash becoming an inventor. True, but at the time, I was. I was... Um, in a long-term, very stable relationship with a woman who wanted to have a Volvo and 2.4 children, a yellow Labrador, and a husband who was a vet and voted conservative. Uh -huh. uh, and I had been going along with this for five years before it finally struck me that, that this was very much not me. Yeah. And that the... Well, what I didn't realise at the time, that I realise now, is that the, the only thing keeping me from getting bored out of my hell, head was just that she was... It's kind of continually mean, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, always putting me down, and I always had to fight to, you know, get a smile or just stop her from silent treatmenting and all of that stuff. So there was enough uh, challenge in built life. into your yeah. relationship that it made you feel like you were making progress with something. Yeah. Well, when we broke up, I lost that completely, and it was it was uh, after recovering from the kind of depressive thing that happened after the breakup that I went there is no challenge in my life anymore mm. so I got up I got into um, I did a public stage performance naked uh, in front of 160 people which scared the monkeys out of me uh, I did stand up now back up one step why did being naked in front of people scare you um, other than socialization well that was probably the main reason <laughs> uh, I had been living with an anorexic for well i've been going out with an anorexic for five years so i had the kind of residual body issue mm, the had, idea that everyone is always judging other people's bodies yeah and i do most of the time feel very fat uh -huh. like now now <laughs> uh listener that's a visual uh gag greg is a normally proportioned human being if somewhat over tall thank you um and and knows that with most of my mind, but still has a little leftover bit of... It's interesting, the idea that it is contagious. It's very contagious. Yeah. It's much more contagious than I'd realised. Mm. Um, it starts with watching somebody else go, oh, God, do I really want to eat this? And then thinking, oh, well, if she's worried about it, maybe I should be worried about it. But then it goes much further on to, uh, with, you know, with her particular style of relationship, which was very um, put-downy. You said mean before. We'll stick with yeah, mean. Yeah, she was, she was a harridan. Anyway. Um, harridan. Yeah. 
It's an unusual. I like that. It's an old, good, good old word, Harridan. Thank you. I was going. Harpy. I was going to go for harpy, and I thought, no, we can go one better. Um, uh, yeah. Eventually, it got onto. Are you sure you want to eat that? And I was like, should I? Should I? Should I not? Uh, I'm like seventeen. Surely I can eat whatever the fuck I like. Yeah, seventeen and six foot four. Four. Yeah, at the time, six foot six now. Oh gosh. Yeah. Still growing. I hope not. Um, <laughs> I'm like 15 kilos lighter than I was while I was training. Uh-huh. But then at the time I could bench press a truck or something, I don't know. Probably not a truck. No, my brother put 600 kilos on my leg press once. I lifted it once. You lifted it once. And then I could barely stand up for a day and a half. Anyway, we're getting off topic. I was talking about fear. Mm-hmm. So, after my relationship ended, I felt like my life was devoid of fear. Mm-hmm. So I took up things to scare me. I got naked in public with permission they were a paying audience mm-hmm. um i sang a solo in front of a crowd of 400 or so and i took up stand-up i remember i met you at that point where you were joining the choir yeah and you and i both were doing standing outside the door of the adc auditioning for the footlights yeah uh, oh man first gig together first gig yeah that was yeah that was fun difficult to put together a recurring joke in three and a half minutes or whatever it is the smoker gives you yeah. <laughs> but fun. Anyway. Oh, man, I love stand-up. I will do some more of that, but not until I'm old and I have good stories. Anyway. Says the man who went blind in Nigeria. Well, I'm getting People back... still don't know that you've come unblind. I'm getting back to that. Hang on. You've left them in suspense. The, what I'm, what I'm trying to, to say... You're asleep on some deadly ants. What I'm trying to say <laughs> is that I chose to scare myself, mm. thinking that I knew fear. Mm. And what I knew was very visceral. I knew pounding heart, sweating palms, um, high-pitched voice, um, all the things that come with visceral fear. Mm-hmm. But what I, I hadn't, what I didn't know then that I know now is that that is not reasoned fear. Mm. That's adrenaline, excitement, nerves. Well, call it what you will. Mm. It wasn't until I looked at my situation and thought, this may kill me. Mm. And I cared enough about the people that know me and like me nowadays. That existential I knew, fear. That I know proper existential fear. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, it was that fear that stopped me from lying down for a quick nap. Yeah. Which I think probably would have finished it. Because when you're bleeding into the lining of your brain, if you keep bleeding into the lining of your brain, well, either the blindness becomes permanent or you die. Um, And so what you've got to try and do is raise your head a long way above your heart, which is to say, keep standing up. Mm. You want to try and lower your blood pressure as far as possible and raise your CO2 so that you don't clot. Well, you do clot, but you don't clot in the same way that you would if you had low blood CO2. Mm -hmm. So I was basically holding my breath, trying to drop my blood pressure and trying to stay standing. Mm-hmm. And trying to get back to base camp, which was, which was like nine kilometers through the jungle, down the side of a volcano. It took four hours. Because you were blind. It took four hours to get there. It took nearly six hours to get back. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and I was only blind for about half of that. It was a slow onset thing. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, that that fear of how did it resolve? Uh, Waking up the next day, I could see a bit, and then by the end of the next day, I could see completely. Mm-hmm. But I put myself on basically. 
Listener, I will get back to why fear is important in just a second. Mm -hmm. I'll finish the story for Alice's benefit, not yours. You would probably enjoy perhaps a logical telling of the story. If so, we'll cut this together into something better. No, we won't. Oh, There's fine. So little editing in this podcast. Rubbish. Um, uh, so, right, I was on I was on the mountain tracking mountain gorillas, of which there are very few left because Nigerians like to eat them because it's a big man thing to do. You're a tough man if you can shoot a gorilla and only eat his hand and throw the rest of them away. Anyway, um, and I got so close I could I could hear them. I could smell them. And I was probably probably ten minutes away from getting a good look, and I slipped and caught my head. Uh, and uh, when I picked myself up, I was like, oh. I appear to be bleeding, and I can feel quite a big hole in the back of my head." Uh-huh. Um, and then the guide who had been sticking his hands in gorilla poo stuck his hand in the hole in the back of my head and then started crying, and then started praying. All three of which were of no help at all. No. Um, and I was like, "Right, stop crying." Stop praying. You'll feel better in the morning, I'm sure. But would you mind taking me home? And so he did. Uh, and then I started going blind. And then but I got home and I realised, ah, this is only base camp and I am the doctor here. People have been coming to me for stitching up. Uh, great. It just so happened that by pure luck, while I'd been away tracking, um, an American doctor had come just as a tourist to stay he didn't have any kit with him or anything, mm. so he used mine to stitch me up. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have any um, local anaesthetic left, so he stitched me up with that anaesthetic, oh, which was fun. great. Um, and then he helped me put together a coma watch so that I could sleep without worrying that I was going to drop into a coma. Um, or, or at least drop into a coma without anybody noticing. Um, and then I, I couldn't get out of the jungle for another like nine days because the um the road is too rough and if i'd been in a car crash or or just shaken around too much with a a freshly hopefully healed um brain injury probable brain injury uh that may have finished me off as well Mm. so i wrote actually that's when i wrote the book the Uh, the first draft of that sci-fi you had a look at was while i was trapped in the jungle anyway that's why there's so many trees in it. That's why there are so many trees in it, precisely. Uh, and a horrible head injury. Um, and ants. So many ants. Oh, dear. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as I was going to say... Are you now afraid of ants? Not in any way. I still think ants are incredible. I mean, ants are phenomenal. But I will tell you about ants some other time. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to say was that was that for me the visceral nerves type fear was something that affected me for a very short period of time and didn't help me form memories it it was something to aim aim for and a good marker to to mark out the progress Mm. but actual fear of death reasoned logical fear of death was incredibly memorable and marked for me a real change in my attitude towards life Mm -hmm. Uh, i have been less hard on myself and more uh involved in keeping touch with people and checking everybody's all right since then Mm. i think possibly because i kind of sat there and thought oh 
they would be quite upset if I dropped dead. So I'd probably be quite upset if they all dropped dead. So maybe I should spend more time with being them, with them while they're alive. Mm. Effectively. Plus I've had like three of my family die since then. So it's a, it's a weird one. Yeah, well, if nothing else, then you would have spent time with them before they died. More than you would have if you hadn't had this near-death experience yourself. Yes, absolutely true. And I think that I probably did spend more time with them than I would have done. It's interesting. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've had since Mum died is... uh, Like, I got in the car with Henry today. Uh, We were going to the Cambridge Folk Festival because he was playing with his uh, music partner, Hattie Briggs. And so the car was full of stuff and Henry and I were squished in on one side. It's a very small, sort of squarish car, which always feels to me more fragile. Than a rounded one. Than a rounded aerodynamic car. The squareness of it seems... I'll take that. Yeah, seems something less safe. Somehow less, more like being in a box. Yeah, fine. Um... Uh, And before even the car started, I sat down and I thought, if we're in a car accident, (laughs) uh, this is how it could go down. And I would likely survive because I'm in the middle and he would likely not. And then I just, you know, played out all of the horrible scenarios in my head, which you sort of have done before, particularly if if you go through phases of anxiety or whatever. But... Now I know what I now actually know what that's like. Um, so that was that occasionally happens now. The existential sort of the reality of 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 death it reshapes your idea of the value of time. Hmm, that's an interesting way to put it. We were talking earlier about uh, about. What you were saying about the idea of death reshapes your your value of time, right? Mm. And it's quite interesting how the idea of pain can reshape the value of death uh-huh. for a vet. Oh, yes. It so... was an interesting conversation we were having uh, earlier about how vets have the highest suicide rate recently. Well, recently, for the last few years, uh, we've overtaken dentists. Apparently dentists are having more fun than they used to. Um, but but I was mentioning that vets are trained to understand death as a form of treatment. That, that no matter what happens, if you are dead, you are not suffering. Yeah. Um, so when and, you're presented with an animal who's really suffering. And there's no way mm. to treat them, you, you don't feel at, that it's the wrong idea to kill them. As with dentists, really. (laughs) (laughs) That tooth is suffering. Destroy the person. Um, And so, with that mindset, and of course with access to incredibly deadly and incredibly calming medications, Mm. it's no wonder that the vets see death has some, some value, some utility as an escape mechanism. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can understand why vets have the highest suicide rate. Well, also access. Yeah. Immediate access. Immediate access. Um, it's a horribly stressful dro- job with long hours and lo- low pay. And you love animals, and then you get to kill them all day. All the time. Like environmental lawyers. Oh no. 
people go into environment law because they think I love the environment. Oh, no. And then the only people who have money to hire environmental lawyers are oil companies. Oh. I've been working for Shell recently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Dude, don't even... Like... I... I hate working for Shell. Which is why I have asked to not be put on any more Shell projects and my company have said that is entirely fair. We have good inventors who don't mind working for Shell. And we have good inventors who don't want to work for Shell. And it's fine if you don't want to work for Shell. And that's fine. I've worked for a major um, petrol and oil company at one point. Yeah, but I'm allowed to say who it is. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not allowed to say who it is. Um, uh, But yes, I remember it was one of the the contracts that we drew up for them that made me really think, oh, I can't do this job. Hmm. Yeah, I was um, recently working for another, well... I say working for, I was asked, I went to a 30 minute briefing on a new invention problem. There was another big oil company that wants to work out how to get oil out of part of Australia. Mm. And they went, and that's the briefing. Isn't it exciting? Really interesting engineering problem. Greg, do you want to work on this? And I was like, no. And they're like, what? It's like, of course I don't want to work on it. Are you kidding? It's, it, leave the carbon where it fucking is. Let's put it underground. Or if it's already underground, let's just leave it there. Great. Uh, so I left. And the, the nice thing about my company is that, like, two of them came up to me afterwards and went, it's entirely fair. Completely forgot about your no oil thing. That's fine. Mm. Um, do you want to work on some guns? I was like, great. I don't mind working on guns. That's fine. That's interesting. Why do you don't not mind working on guns, but you do mind working on oil? Because... Scale? Uh, partly scale. Mm-hmm. Partly scale. Uh, partly I don't care too much for people um i would rather that we fewer people more environment (sighs) (laughs) to a degree Mm -hmm. yes okay so when i was younger i was uh given the choice i would have been a genocidal maniac Mm -hmm. um you know the old big red button question Mm. everybody knows the big red button question you have a big red button that kills off all people including yourself do you press it Mm. And throughout my teens, I was a definite yes. Mm. As are many teens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Life is confusing and miserable as a teenager. Thank goodness they're not veterinarians. Precisely. You cannot be a vet in your teens. Teen Vet is a very short television series. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Teen Vet has treated two dogs. They both died. Teen Vet has killed themselves. Anyway. um, Okay, so... That was very good non-gender specifying... Well, of teen, teen vet. You didn't say himself or herself. You no. said the slightly clumsy themselves. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I could have gone for one of the gender neutral here or whatever the other. Gender Z. neutral words haven't caught on. No, and I think for good reason. They're horrible. Like Esperanto. Good idea <laughs> in concept. Yes. But no one's going to really do it yet. Well, like a hundred people did. <laughs> and they can talk to themselves. Or uh, if they're ever in the same country, they can talk to other people. Anyway. Um... So, weirdly, what turned me around was going to the ballet. The ballet? Yeah, I went to see... Um, some ballet? Some ballet. Fuck knows, I was 19. Anyway, I was trying to impress a girl. Was it the anorexic girl? Yes. No wonder she took you to the ballet. She did. I also went to the Ritz. I saved That's up for very like judgmental. five months. But I have not met anybody uh, An anorexic who doesn't like ballet? <laughs> No, I've not met anybody who was at a seriously high level in ballet mm-hmm. who doesn't have an eating disorder. I think that's probably fair. 
I may well in future meet one and then I will discard my theory but so far no one who I've met who's been beyond like fun times running around in tutus yep. at any competitive level has come out unscathed from yep. that particular discipline. At some point I need to talk to you about my favourite dance troupe in London who do a lot of fun time running around in tutus and include a lot of gloriously, gorgeously chubby women which is like listener one of my massive hobbies chubby women you don't even get me started but right now we are talking about something else although the image of cute girls and tutus has blown it right out of my head we were talking about how you went to see the ballet and it changed your ballet. opinion on the red button right yes ballet i was watching ballet and thinking you know what nothing else can do this if we kill off everything else this is gone and I don't even like ballet that much. It's Some of it's quite cool. Um, but I, I saw a fantastic version of um, Hosier's Take Me to Church. Dance to balletically. Gorgeous. Anyway. And then I started thinking about other things that only humanity has cracked. <laughs> and then I thought, right. To get to these breakthroughs has cost the environment a huge amount. Vast quantities of carbon in the atmosphere, vast quantities of ocean acidification, biodiversity loss, habitat loss, etc. But we've got these things out of it. If we were to kill off all humanity now, the niche of massively awful super predator planet destroying species is open again. Mm. And eventually something will rise up and take it. Sharks with legs. Sharks with legs, crows with guns, something. Probably another Emus monkey. Emus with attitude. They've all got attitude already. Emus are... Oh, Dude, cassowaries are scarier. Emus are angry. Yes, cassowaries are ninjas. <laughs> um, they're, they're so calm until they kill you. Um, but what I was thinking was that... I think emus have killed people, but I don't think cassowaries have killed anybody. Nobody's been killed by Casuari. I don't think so. Oh my God. I mean, you're the vet. I am the vet. I know that lots of Casuari's have been killed by people. I don't know the other statistic. But I do know that that niche would be open again, right? Mm -hmm. And if we, if the fact that the niche is filled is the only thing stopping another species from going through that massively wasteful process to get up to where we are at the moment. Mm. And... I think it was... Yeah, you don't a... want to see the frog industrial revolution. No, you don't. Frog child labour. Yeah, exactly. Tadpoles making things, little shoes for... Other... Not tadpoles, God, can you imagine how awful it would be for a tadpole to make shoes? Can't even try them on. <laughs> it doesn't even have hands. I have to lick them into existence. Um, but... But I thought for the first time maybe there's hope that we'll get past our polluting infancy and become something better and if we do that it's all been worth it hmm. and I had hope and maybe I still have a little bit of hope so I still wouldn't press that button mm -hmm. um, I don't believe we have the power to wipe out life all life we have the power to wipe out ourselves we have the power to wipe out a shitload of species but honestly, at the moment, we're not going to kill off all life. If we nuclear bomb the entire planet, I think it was Michael Crichton who said this at the end of 
the Lost World, which was the only sequel he ever wrote. cockroaches with mobile phones. Actually, he was talking about thermophilic bacteria, but similar game. Life will come back mm. without us. But there might just be a little speck of hope that life, life will become something new through us. Mm. That's enough for me now to press the button. I, I don't like humanity. I, I think we're a disaster. We, we stink. We mess everything up. And we think it's a good thing. But it still wouldn't wipe us out. I probably disagree with you. Um, but you would wipe us out? Or you don't think we stink? Oh, I think that I don't read internet comments because I like to look at the good things <laughs> about humanity. <laughs> um, yeah. I think if you read too many internet comments, you would definitely press that button. Uh, and apart from that, I try to focus on the things that I can do rather than the things that other people are doing. Interesting. An introspective way of reasoning an external action. Mm. Which you can do because you are human. <laughs> Therefore, it's like the piece of fairy cake in the machine. You've read Douglas Adams? Yes. The, the logic goes, a fairy cake is made of matter. Fairy bread. Was it fairy bread? I don't know. I think it's fairy bread. Oh, fair enough. Apologies. I thought it was I, fairy I, cake. You're more of a Douglas Adams expert than I am. But I have read it the once. Give me a break. Anyway, um, fairy bread is made of matter. And therefore, if you know everything about the fairy bread, you can work out what matter would do to form the universe. And therefore, if you know enough about that fairy bread, you can calculate what's happening in the rest of the universe right now mm-hmm. so they they yeah there's a big theoretical machine that can examine this piece of fairy cake bread whatever fairy cake let's call it cake but thank you it's on the tip of my tongue at all times um uh, you, you can you can work out everything i think what you've just done is the exact same which is to look internally go i'm a human and these nice things mean this to me therefore humanity can't be that bad <laughs> So I just smugly assume that because I'm nice, there's hope for humanity? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> That's what it sounded like anyway. And who knows? Maybe that is the right way to do it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think people who are depressed are often more realistic about their insignificance in the shape of the world. Um, yes. But the, I guess this is my thing. If If life is as short as it seems to be, and as full of pain as it seems to be, mm-hmm. and as meaningless in in any kind of cosmic sense as it seems to be, the impact we have is minuscule or minimal at best in the scope of human history and in the and human history in the scope of the shape of the universe. Why would you be miserable? <laughs> Because each one of those sliders goes either way to infinity, and therefore its position is is meaningless. Yeah, so, I mean, this is the thing. If everything is really, really meaningless and ineffectual, mm-hmm. but you have the capacity to be happy, mm-hmm. why would you then be miserable? Um, uh, either I, way, it means nothing. I agree. Or less than nothing. I agree, but it doesn't mean nothing. 
Because that, that slider goes all the way. You don't know where either end of that thing is. Mm. Because we... All right. Let's think about the size of the universe for a second. Yes. If you go all the way down to the very smallest thing that can exist, mm-hmm. you're looking at the Planck length. Anything smaller than that basically just evaporates immediately. If there was a guy, if there was another guy here, I'd be like, this dude's penis, never mind. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't just, <laughs> just point it straight at me. Um, although, how would I tell? It's only 10 to the minus 60 something meters long. Um, which is to say, anything smaller than that cannot exist. Mm-hmm. And then we think about the universe itself, 13.8 billion light years across, mm-hmm. ish. Give or take. Give or take. <laughs> a mile here or there. The difference between those things is something like 10 to the 85, I guess. I don't speak maths. Fine. A shitload. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, shitload or a fuckton, be precise. <laughs> a 4.2 giga fuckton. Okay. Um, well, let me teach you to speak maths just for this equation. Because Must this, I? It, yes, it's worth it. the psychological block I was no, this is bullied by my maths teacher. Trust me. So, we, we guesstimated that the, the difference in scale, the number of Planck lengths across the universe, is something like 10 to the 85. Mm-hmm. So that's 10 with 85 noughts after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Now, holding that number in the back of your head, think about human perception. Mm-hmm. I can perceive something down to about the width of a human hair. Anything smaller than that, to me, is just really tiny. Mm-hmm. And that's that's about 10 micron, maybe, maybe slightly more, maybe more like 100 micron. But it's, it's about a tenth of a millimeter, yeah? Mm-hmm. And then I can also perceive distances up to about 1,000 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Anything over that is just really fucking far, mm-hmm. yeah? So the difference there is 10 to the... 11, 12, I might be losing count here. Okay, but that's 10 to the 12, whatever. My perceptual limits fit into the universe 10 to the 60 times, which is to say, if I was a Planck length big... How big is a Planck? Uh, precisely. A, that's a Planck with a C, not a, no, a CK, not just a K. Very, very tiny. It's 10 to the minus lots. Mm-hmm. Um you could put my perception on top of itself each time getting bigger by 10 to the 12 and it would still be 10 10 to the 60 times doing that through the universe so these sliders that you're talking about Mm. these sliders where you say my action is insignificant Mm. go the other way as well in the big universe yeah fine your action is insignificant but in the little universe your action is is everything Mm -hmm. to the ant that you step on your choice to do that is everything. It's cataclysmic. That's interesting. That's a very good argument. I was listening to um, oh, podcaster Alicia somebody, uh, and she was talking about the zombie movies and the mm-hmm. idea of the end of the world and mm-hmm. saying, if you're in Syria, the apocalypse has happened. <laughs> you know, if you're in Haiti when that thing went down... That's the end of your world. Yeah. This idea that we have that you know the whole world will end is is a ridiculous one. It's also. Or that things will change. Yeah. Well, obviously, but I mean, in in the kind of zombie movie uh, parameters, sure, okay. this idea that this something will happen and and then we get to not worry about our families anymore, or our jobs. 
but yes, that's a good point. I think that might be a strong argument for my position on things, which is just to be as good as you can in any given situation that's directly in front of you. I, I think that is a very valid position, and it's one that I try to hold as well. Well, good. Now I'll just let you do the maths on it. Uh, well, my maths is very much kind of plus or minus 100,000 here or there. So. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're the one who's inventing jet engines. <laughs> hey, you wouldn't, like, trust me, some of the fun stuff you're going to see if you ever fly in the, um, okay, the Dreamliner. You know the 787, the new Boeing? Mm-hmm. You've had to do with that. Oh, yeah. All sorts of fun stuff. So if you go inside and suddenly it feels a lot less like being in prison than other planes. That's you. We did that. Yay. It's pretty what, cool. What kind of things? Uh, honestly, I shouldn't say. Okay. What kind of problems did you perceive and solve then okay. directly? I can certainly tell you You don't you have that. to say the solutions themselves. Um, so um, when flying in a normal plane... Mm. a normal commercial airliner mm. you are subjected to a full list of things so we would at work have gone through everything that you were subjected to from the em spectrum the amount of light hitting you the amount of uh, sound hitting you the airflow the things in the airflow the temperature pressure lots of human farts in the airflow yes but interestingly even in the 80s, they were still arranging the uh, airflow to flow from head to arse. Therefore, mm. farts are sucked away and filtered. Oh, very nice. Uh, not always perfectly effectively, but no. that's the aim. The Air aim. In at the top, down at the bottom. Like that. Do you have charcoal in the seats? Uh, no, because it would very quickly become saturated. Mm. There would be no point in having it there in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but all of these factors um, can be tweaked. In various ways to improve the flying experience mm-hmm. one that i find quite interesting is that long-term noise and by that i mean anything over about an hour at certain frequencies and volumes um changes your t- sense of taste interesting which is one reason that f airplane food tastes so weird uh, i thought it was because the, they put so much salt in it uh on the ground that food tastes delicious. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not delicious, but it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's totally palatable. Totally say. delicious. I quite like it. But then, to be honest, I don't mind it too much in the air. But I have tried it on the ground as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the perception of salt goes up oh. if you play somebody a loud grinding noise for a couple of hours. Interesting. Uh, and it has to be over about 105 decibels. Um, but what, Which it is. Which it is. What also changes is the air pressure. And the air pressure leads to expansion of gases, which leads to pressure on the inside of your intestines, which leads to lots of people farting on planes, but also um, changes the action of the nerve cells around your gut, which can change your mood in very specific ways. Uh Um, Because you've got that, like, set of nerve endings in your gut that's like a second brain's worth of nerve endings. It's... It's certainly more nerve cells than you have in your brain. Uh-huh. Probably slightly f- fewer connections, but in fact, definitely fewer connections, but more cells. Interesting. It's quite cool. Um, um, 
So what else? So other things we were thinking about were um, fooling perception. You understand the space you're in by what it looks like normally. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, you're not looking around the room at all times going, okay, that corner's still over there, that corner's still over there, that corner's still over there. Instead, you have a glance around when you enter a space and your brain builds a map of that space. And it doesn't rely on you looking around every room you go into. Generally, it works off your your peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Your peripheral vision is for spotting predators. Originally, that's why it's there. So take all the tigers out of planes. Take all the tigers out of planes was our first step. Turns out it hasn't been done before, which amazed me. Especially not in Tiger Airlines. <laughs> no, Tiger Airlines is flown by tigers. Mm. Fueled mostly on tiger. Um, tiger, tiger. Is that a beer? Tiger yes. beer? Good. Probably. I don't know. I don't drink beer. Maybe I should. Um, we drink tigers. Let's stop with this. Continue. Good. Thank you. Um, so, if your your peripheral vision is designed to spot predators, mm-hmm. which is to say it's very, very good at spotting edges and movement, but kind of not great at spotting um, the exact shape of things, because generally it just goes, oh, there's something, and then you look at it and use the center of your eye. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's fine. When you walk into a space, your peripheral vision is good enough to work out where the edges are. Looking at me now... Mm. Can you see the edge of the ceiling up there? Uh, more or less. Yeah. And that's without moving your eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's feeding into your brain. Now, what you could do is put you in a sphere or a dome and just paint those edges on. Your peripheral vision wouldn't be good enough to tell the difference. Mm. So as long as people don't immediately pay a huge amount of te- attention, like when you walk onto a plane, generally you're more interested in finding your seat and not having a toddler run into your kneecap. Mm. than you are in having a close look at whether or not people have painted fake lines on things. Ah, so you painted fake lines on things. Well, we certainly did. Um, in a way to fool your perception. Into feeling like it's a bigger space. Precisely. <laughs> um, so loads and loads of tricks from theatre, lots of stuff on um, on fooling perception to believing there's more space, more light, Um Lots of stuff to do with noise protection, lots of stuff to do with the shape of the windows. It was a fascinating job. Yeah, because it still has to fly. Mm. And basically, you can't change any of the relevant bits. You can't change the actual size or shape of the thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's very cool. It It was a very interesting job, and I wish I could tell you more about it, but I've told you pretty much the exact limit of what's... uh what's doable legally well the thing is i think is to go and fly in one of these airplanes i would thoroughly recommend it and email greg uh with a list of the tricks that you've seen there are and he'll tell you whether you're right or wrong there are probably eight big ones eight big tricks if you go on the dreamliner when are they i think that they've already started flying all right so if you're on a dreamliner airplane think of Eight things that you can see and email Greg. Bear in mind that our brief was from Boeing. Please make flying less like being in prison. So no what tigers. We've done is no soap. Uh, <laughs> no chance of institutionalized gang rape. They let you keep your shoelaces. <laughs> you can keep your shoelaces. Oh, can you please make them let me keep my shoes on? 
that's not within my domain, unfortunately. I wish it was. You just need to cut, stop carrying shoe knives. I think that's a ridiculous thing. Uh, although I think we're running out of time, but the just this ridiculous emphasis on safety over freedom. Did you um? Did you hear what happened when the TSA were tested recently? I'm sure they failed on every on every possible. So part of the American government tested the TSA, another part of the American government. Yeah. Um, uh, by sending 368 test people through with test bombs strapped to them in various places. The TSA missed every single one of them. Yeah, and yet it's so incredibly inconvenient to fly. So A, you've got privileging security over freedom Mm -hmm. on, you know, just an enormous scale, and then you're saying that doesn't even... Mm-hmm. make you more secure. So we've just given up freedom for the illusion of marginally more security, which doesn't seem like a great bargain to me. Yeah, but you're not American. <laughs> no. And it's their call. It's their government doing their government things within America. But I'm flying all over the world, and it's all it's all over the world, this stuff. Yeah, but in each case put in place by governments that are voted for by people who are afraid. Mm. Boo. You're young. All right, I think we've come full circle on fear. I think we have. A pleasure talking with you. Lovely talking to you. How can people find you online? Do you have a blog or a website or something that you'd like to plug? I don't see why not. Yeah. If you're into photography, you should have a look on Google for undercover superhero and if you are into a self-defeating name yeah yeah I was 15 let it go um uh, you'll find me I'm the first hit um and just follow a few links from that you'll find my dream blog uh my travel log which is all handwritten and scanned in well photographed in because I didn't have a scanner um wait a minute 15 year old you wanted to be an undercover superhero and explode the world yeah, pretty much. I was, I was conflicted. Yep. Anyway, nice talking with you. Nice talking with you. You're having tea with us.